Hello listeners, I'm Steve Torrens with Below the Radar, a knowledge democracy podcast. Below the Radar is recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. On this episode of Below the Radar, our host, Amjo Hal, is joined by Rumina Filipova, a co-founder of the Institute for Global Analytics. In this episode, Rumina discusses her new book, Constructing the Limits of Europe, Identity and Foreign Policy in Poland, Bulgaria, and Russia since 1989. Rumina explores how these three countries differ so starkly in terms of the pace and extent of their integration into Europe. Enjoy the episode! Welcome to Below the Radar. Delighted that you could join us again this week. Really excited that we have Rumina Filipova with us today. Welcome, Rumina. Hi, and thank you for the invitation. Yeah, wondering if we can begin with you introducing yourself a little bit. I'm co-founder and chairperson of the Institute for Global Analytics. We're a newly established think tank in Bulgaria, which aims to connect the global with the local in an increasingly interconnected world. Um, my research areas include international relations, identity politics, uh, media and disinformation, with a regional focus on Central and uh, Eastern Europe, Russia, and also China and East Asia more broadly. And my forthcoming book is titled Constructing the Limits of Europe, Identity and Foreign Policy in Poland, Bulgaria and Russia since 89. Okay. And so uh, a part of what you study as well is sort of Russian uh, influence in Central and Eastern Europe. So far away from from Vancouver, where I'm uh, based, and I'm wondering if you can sort of characterize sort of certainly in the in the post 1990 context of what you see as as major themes um, in that regard in terms of the dissolution of the former Soviet Union um, into Russian uh, interests and attempts at uh, influence in the region. So first of all, in terms of the context, it is very important to mention that initially since 89, in the first decade of the 90s, and also uh, uh, until some point in the 2000s, Russia, like the other countries of Central and Eastern Europe, was attempting to join the Euro-Atlantic community in ideational security and economic terms. However, this process happened a lot more smoothly and was successful in certain parts of Central and Eastern Europe. However, Russia was not integrated in the Euro-Atlantic community and since at least 2008, it has uh, tried to reestablish its influence in the former uh, communist area of um, Central and Eastern Europe. And most recently, Russia has posited conservatism and traditional values, uh, including patriotism, strong state authority, collective uh, values, traditional family, and also in terms of international relations, balances of power and spheres of influence as an alternative to liberal democracy and to the um, Western-led international order. And um, in this context, the uh, dissemination of disinformation has been a prime tool through which Russia has been trying to reestablish its influence in the region. 
And drawing on my uh, research for the study countering the Kremlin's uh, influence in Europe, can actually say that there is an important trend of significant commonalities of the disseminated pro-Russian anti-democratic narratives in a range of countries in uh, Central and Eastern Europe, including Bulgaria, Poland, the Czech Republic, but also Germany from the Western half of the continent. And uh, interestingly, all those similar narratives feed into a so-called pro-Kremlin anti-democratic discursive ecosystem which is based on four main pillars, um, which are informed by nationalist, misogynist, and anti-migrant, and also economically illiberal narratives. So just to give an example with uh, nationalist uh, narratives, uh, Russia is usually posited as the prime anti-fascist power in the world, whereas it is argued that neo-Nazi practices are resurging in in the West. Um, Also, it is argued that traditional values guard against the supposed excesses of liberalism. And also, there is a high premium placed on sovereignty as a way to safeguard an uh, idealized um, traditional Identity. So all in all, we have to say that um, the uh, resurgence of Russian power and its attempt to reestablish itself uh, in, in the spheres of its uh, former communist ally- allies uh, has taken place very prominently in the media sphere. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, when I think about uh, illiberalism as a term, I immediately uh, think of Viktor Orban in Hungary as a kind of example of uh, 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 forms of uh, hyper-nationalism and uh, uses of the term. And I think it's also important to understand the uh, psychology of the nation states in Central and Eastern Europe in the sense uh, going from a form of authoritarianism into what in the 90s could be characterized as a, a form of uh, crony capitalism sell-off of state assets, um, frustration with systems, uh, the possibilities of uh, joining the EU, and also a kind of cynicism of of what came um, afterwards. So seeing in people's lifetimes the changing of systems and different influences and a way that was uh, disconnected from, from people. And so it creates a kind of atmosphere where forms of populism and that that it the Russian intervention in, in these places and attempts to influence media and others has a place to kind of gain a gain a foothold uh, because of those frustrations. Would that be accurate to say? It is. It is indeed accurate, and it's uh, very interesting. And to some observers, it may be surprising that countries such as Poland and uh, Hungary, which were really front runners in terms of the democratization uh, process and the transition to a free market economy in the 1990s, and also well into the 2000s, in a way reversed uh, their course, so to say. And um, I would argue that this is about the return of a particular form of national tradition of conception of Europe, which is much more conservative and which has coexisted with the liberal understandings and liberal conception of Europe that does also exist in those societies. So there is a tug of war between these two kinds of um, understandings of Europe and they're rooted in uh, uh, long-term histories of the region. And it is exactly because the liberal tradition was 
empowered in the 1990s. It took precedence and it was implemented that it was possible for the countries of Central Europe and here I mean Poland, Hungary, the Czech Republic to carry out the transition process in a more or less successful way or at least in a much more advanced way than the countries of let's say Southeast Europe where different histories make uh, the region a little bit more ambiguous in terms of its affinities between East and West. But we do indeed see this process of a return of the conservative, much more authoritarian tradition in countries like uh, Hungary and Poland, which also represents in a way a backlash against the depth and extent of the process of Europeanization that happened so quickly in those countries and in particular on the parts of some sections of society that lost out economically. So it's uh, both an ideational and also uh, a process which also has its uh, economic insecurity underpinnings. But it's definitely the case that uh, Russia is trying to engage those conservative layers of society and it has done so through a variety of ways, for instance, by building links with extremist parties or at least parties which have uh, pro-Russian and uh, anti-European to some extent uh, leanings also through financially backing those political actors but also journalists and uh, uh, business people so it has used a variety of means in order to build connections to the circles in of uh, European societies. And here I mean not just uh, Hungary, but also a range of other countries like uh, Austria, for example, or um, Italy, uh, so that in this way the Kremlin can advance its uh, agenda. You know, uh, Romina, when I've traveled to Europe, it's interesting when you ask, you know, where does, you know, Central or Eastern Europe begin and you're in a, a place, everyone always thinks Eastern Europe is to the east of them. You know, you go to Hungary, it's like, oh, Eastern Europe starts in Romania or, you know, it, it really, uh, it's it's an interesting thing about where these borders uh, imagined or not actually begin and end in, in so many ways. In terms of how you see Russia today, uh, in which countries of Eastern Europe do you would you characterize the greatest influence that they have or the most activity as you see it? And also, uh, what forms does it does it take? You know, every nation state has interests. They attempt to assert their rights and interests. And so in which ways does Russia try to do that? And in which ways does it uh, move away from what would be the norms of a, of, a, of a nation state engaging in diplomacy or influence in a place? So, first of all, it's uh, important indeed to put the Russian influence in Central and Eastern Europe in its historical context and just uh, highlight the fact that uh, Russia has well-established channels of uh, influence and connections in um, the region due to the fact that uh, these countries belong to the same uh, system before 89 and they have some shared affinities in terms of uh, language, history and um, ethnic ties. So uh, Russia already can tap into a set of important ties that it has established in the region. Now, as a result, we see both similarities but also differences in terms of the intensity of Russian influence uh, in the region. So 
If we look at uh, Southeast Europe, uh, for example, you can see that Russia deploys a number of similar instruments for leveraging its uh, media influence, also similar channels and narratives uh, that uh, it is disseminating to the region. Also, in terms of audience impact, that there are a number of similarities across the Balkans, for example, that predispose to a high degree of receptivity to Russian messaging and also of late another uh, authoritarian power namely China has been amplifying and acting together with Russia in terms of disseminating anti-EU and anti-NATO messaging so just to give an example in terms of the instruments of Russian influence in the Balkans. It is very interesting that uh, Russia typically deploys informal means of uh, influence, which are based on the cultivation of opaque local networks of patronage, that is to say building uh, economic ties and political links to business people, journalists, content creators, also business people. And this stands in opposition to uh, some kind of um, direct ownership of media outlets that can be easily traceable in officially available sources. So this means that the direct presence of Russian uh, companies in the ownership structures of Balkan media outlets is very negligible. So the way that influence is leveraged is through informal means of um, influence. And it is also uh, interesting to note um, that these informal means of uh, influence are augmented through a number of other, so to say, auxiliary tools. For example, uh, Russia is uh, able to tap into the advertising markets uh Southeast European countries and in this way generate revenue but also affect public opinion. Uh, we should note again the importance of lingering uh, linguistic ties and the fact that uh, still uh, a number of journalists uh, within those countries understand Russian and therefore seek Russian sources of information. And last but not least, it's uh, uh, important to mention the opportunities for free of charge reprinting of Russian-owned outlets such as Putnik. And this is definitely a boon in the financially uh, constrained uh, markets in the Balkans. And I would also like to highlight a number of other similarities related to the audience um, impact and receptivity to Russian to Russian disinformation messaging and in particular two trends that Russia is able to tap into. So the first one is related to the lingering ambiguities in the region. So uh, they're still ambivalent between their eastern and Western affinities, which is usually expressed in the willingness to maintain good ties with both Russia and uh, the West. And also, it is very interesting that as regards the EU members the, uh, from the region and also the prospective candidates, they usually associate the European Union with instrumental benefits, such as the ability to travel, uh, find employment uh, throughout uh, other EU countries. And so the values-based affinity and attachment to the EU is much weaker, which is again dangerous because uh, Russia can play into the emotional and values-based uh, differences and attachments in the region. And the second important trend that uh, Russia is able to leverage is the prevalent discontent uh, with the process of democratization 
in the Balkans, and also the high level of distrust in political institutions and the media as well. So uh, Russia is successfully channeling its narratives in a way that will sway uh, public opinion so that uh, the credibility of democracy is weakened and the message, the disinformation message is spread that authoritarianism is a preferable political arrangement to democracy. I imagine in the in the Balkans, the heaviest influence of, of Russia is likely in Serbia, but is it in other parts of the Balkans as well? Yes. So uh, when it comes to the differences of Russian influence, of course, there are uh, important country-based differentiations in the permeability of Russian influence because there are different degrees to which, after all, Russia is able, able to penetrate the informational environments of those countries. So it's absolutely indeed the case that Serbia can be termed a pivot of Russian disinformation um, activities. And this is so because of a number of reasons. Apart from the political context in which Serbia is trying to, so to say, balance relations between uh, the West and the uh, East, um, more concretely, uh, the Russian-owned Sputnik with its uh, Serbian uh, language edition is a very important channel of disseminating Russian messages, not only in Serbia, but also through throughout the region because of the intelligibility of the Serbian language for Western Balkan audiences. But also, uh, apart from Sputnik, it is important to mention that a lot of pro-government outlets in Serbia themselves um, disseminate Russian propagandist messages and also Chinese ones of late. And uh, China has, uh, in uh, Serbia, does serve as a digital hub for China um, in the Balkans. So this is on one end of the spectrum, really. But then there are countries such as um, Albania and Kosovo, where the situation is somewhat different because uh, Russian influence um, does not have uh, firm grounds on which to stand. And this, of course, has to do with the larger historical and political context and the fact that Russia has a post independence and has tried to drive a wedge between the Albanian populations and the Slavic populations um, in the Balkans. So Russia cannot uh, really attempt to disseminate messages within the Kosovar uh, media environment, which portray uh, Moscow and Russian society in a very positive way because there is no societal receptivity uh, for that. But the way that Russia, in, Russian influence, media influence works in countries which have had historically difficult relations with the Kremlin is to affect the external environment and external views of uh, Kosovars in this case, but also this applies to Poland. So to taint, in a way, the image of those countries in the eyes of its uh, neighbors and also the rest of Europe. So um, there are definitely degrees of influence. I want to come back to this question of um, uh, Russia exerting its in influence and how it differs from, uh, say, the United States or the EU or you know another actor in, in Central Europe in, in Germany, which has uh, a lot of influence as well uh, economically. And in what uh, parts of Russian uh, engagement in, in this way uh, breaks from norms? It, it certainly seems there's illiberal 
messaging at play and uh, certain ways of gaining and uh, consolidating positioning and, and influence. But in, in what ways is it new and which ways does it break from norms of other countries and other institutions attempting to gain, you know, for example, in, in Bosnia, there's a lot of money from Saudi Arabia coming in. EU and other places, and so different entities have different agendas in in the, in the region, just as Russia does. But what sets uh, their engagement up as as different or breaking from norms? So, as we uh, discussed at the very beginning, Russia has uh, given up on integrating within the Euro-Atlantic community, which, if it uh, if it happens, has to happen uh, not only on the basis of strategic uh, alignment or economic transformation, but also in terms of norms and values. So a key part of the EU and NATO accession process was about um, implementing in practice a set of liberal democratic values and norms in the countries which had the strongest, also historically underlined affinity and ability to practice those norms were the most advanced ones in terms of being able to join the EU, NATO, and the variety of um, Western structures and institutions. However, in the Russian case, despite um, the declarations, mostly rhetorical declarations about the desire to join the uh, Euro-Atlantic space, particularly in the early 1990s, also in the very early 2000s, it gradually became clear that Russian values and the um, the predominantly empowered Russian values, so to say, the tradition of thinking in Russia, the particular tradition of thinking, and the evolution of the domestic political regime made it clear that Russia could not integrate the West on the basis of the same liberal democratic values because it was evolving in the uh, direction of a conservative traditionalist discourse and policies. And so as a result, when it comes to Central and Eastern Europe and the Balkans uh, more specifically, Russia has started competing on a normative level with the West. So as opposed to uh, liberal democratic norms, integration, the values of good neighborliness, which are important facets of the EU integration process, Russia has uh, posited an authoritarian political regime, statism, uh, the value of patriotism and collectivism. So there has been a fully-fledged ideological challenge that Russia has posed, and it has been uh, expressed in particular in the the media messages that it has been disseminating. But when it comes to uh, other actors, it is important to note that China has recently also increased um, its presence in the region and usually in concert with uh, Russia. So this uh, makes up the team of, so to say, authoritarian states which oppose uh, uh, liberal democracy in the West, not only on the global level and in terms of their visions of how the international order should look like and it should be structured, but also um, in terms of in terms of the uh, local manifestations of these competing uh, ambitions. So 
And just to give an example, as opposed to the freedom of expression of a variety of views and holding politicians to account, which uh, should be the primary function of uh, media, uh, pro-Russian groups and interests have uh, conversely tried to capture the ownership uh, structures um, in an informal way, mostly, and also editorial policy so that it conforms to a particular uh, singular uh, and uh, pro-authoritarian anti-democratic point of view. <laughs> Certainly uh, in recent years, seeing the annexation of, of Crimea, Russian um, involvement and continued engagement and influence in the Ukraine, uh, but also the Baltic countries as well. And I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to um, Russian influence presently in Ukraine and the Baltic countries where significant Russian minorities exist as, as well. And that is a, also a somewhat uh, different uh, context that we have to take into consideration. The Baltic countries, in particular, given their experience of outright Russian domination over their sovereignties and also conceptions of uh, nationality, have a very different stance than some countries in the Western Balkans or in Southeast Europe more uh, generally, in that, that, in that they're highly and acutely vigilant of all kinds of Russian meddling activities and influence operations in the political, economic, and uh, media sphere. So in general, we can say that these uh, societies are a lot more attuned to the dangers of Russian influence, which is in itself an important precondition for countering it. it because if we compare that to um, the Balkans, again, what comes out is that uh, these countries in the region still have very strong affinities and ties to Russia, which uh, often prevents the development of civil societal resilience towards Russian initiatives and uh also, political acknowledgement of the security threat that Russia frequently presents to the countries in the region. Now, uh, when it comes to Ukraine, of course, uh, it has very significant uh, divides uh, within society in many ways. But what the events of late 2013 and 2014 have changed is the perception of uh, Russia in large parts of Ukrainian society. So if before 2013, 2014, Russia was, uh, could be seen in a positive uh, way, then the events completely turned tide in it. Uh, actually, we can argue whether Russian actions were at all strategically well thought out, and because in a way they lost um, the hearts and minds of the Ukrainians. Now, you spoke to this sort of confluence of Russian and Chinese interests overlapping. And of course, there's a long history of uh, those countries both being aligned, but also historically not aligned in, in periods. And we seem to be back uh, in a time where there are mutual interests, particularly encountering Western domination and expansion. The uh, Jimmy Carter's former Secretary of State, Zbigniew Brzezinski, uh, originally from, from Poland, uh, often would talk about that in the great game of geopolitics, that it was in Europe's and American interests to bring Russia into the European sphere. And this was like the long-term play, and this is what uh, Putin uh, regularly uh, critiques on his own, and certainly Russian uh, geopolitical analysts uh, do the same. And I'm wondering if you can speak a, a little bit to that confluence uh, 
between China and Russia in terms of where their interests align, but also are there contexts in which they have different interests in particular regions that may produce either a conflict or a misalignment in terms of what they're trying to do? Uh, so in terms of um, the context in uh, Southeast Europe, what we are seeing so far in terms of evidence is that it seems that Russia and China are cooperating. So just to give an example from the media sphere. China is increasingly making in, uh, inroads in the informational spaces of the uh, Balkan countries. And one of the ways in which this is happening is through Russian channels and instruments of influence. And uh, I can give examples with Bulgaria and Serbia. When it comes to um, Bulgaria, China uses the local pro-Russian proxies in order to expand its media influence. For example, China Today, the China Today newspaper is a recent addition to the news market in Bulgaria and it has the same editorial and um, management structure as Russia today. So this is one example of cooperation through uh, local actors who are both pro-Russian and pro-Chinese. And in the Serbian case, this confluence between Russia and China um, takes place even on a higher political level. So basically, it reaches the highest echelons of uh, power. Uh, one way in which this is uh, happening is through the joint council that exists in Serbia for coordinating the cooperation initiatives with the Russian Federation and China. And also, we see that in the media sphere, in that uh, Serbian um, pro-government outlets, semi both Russian and Chinese um, disinformation. Now, um, when it comes to other areas and countries of the world, I can say that we have yet to see whether there will be significant divergences between um, uh, Russia and China. But most recently, it seems that the evidence points in the direction of confluence. For instance, when it comes to Afghanistan, both uh, Russia and China seem to have um, coordinated their positions and uh, in the very least, their goals and assessments of what is uh, happening and how the situation should be handled sound very, very similar. So for now, we have uh, we see evidence of cooperation and coordination between the two countries, but of course, there is always room for divergence. And one important element which is uniting them uh, is the common opposition to the West and liberal values. And I can include Turkey also in that framework and also the nature of their domestic political regimes, which are authoritarian. So there are important ideological ties. And even if there are strategic differences, particularly in the Russian-Turkish relationship, for example, it does seem that uh, the two countries are able to tone it down in the name of their shared goal of opposing the Western liberal order. What do you see as the possibilities of an antidote to the forms of hyper-nationalism which seem to have taken root in Central and Eastern Europe? There's you know, a differential levels of civil society engagement in some of these countries, and certainly it's gone up and down post-1990 and uh, moments of EU integration. But what do you see now as some both... Um, 
uh, negative trends related to nationalism, but also some positive trends that might be emerging on the on the ground. So, in in terms of negative trends, it should be mentioned that the anti-democratic turn in Central and Eastern Europe is also, of course, paralleled by similar trends in the rest of the European continent. So, we see the rise of right-wing populism, particularly since 2008, which was the result of a variety of factors, including economic disenchantment. Uh, disappointment with the political elites, but also the re-emergence and re-empowerment of a particular nationalist authoritarian uh, tradition within those societies. And so basically, uh, right-wing uh, populists postulate self-designated idea of the majority of the nation and their sovereignty as opposed to individual rights and freedoms against the liberal constitutional checks and balances. So these are the commonalities across Europe. But we should mention that these, the problem of right-wing nationalism has been also reinforced by technological developments, including a variety of monopolistic um, practices on the part of the technological giants and the fact that uh, they can use their digital infrastructures and large access to a huge number of um, their users' information to generate profit and also to block competition from up-and-coming arrivals. Here, the uh, debates about uh, digital tax, how much or even whether they should be taxed, figuring this set of factors as well. And also not to forget that um, technological developments have had a very important social and political uh, impact in terms of how the, the spread of disinformation impacts electoral choices, for example, and how it enables authoritarian influence. So we have right-wing populism. It's exacerbated in certain ways by technological developments. And then we have, uh, of course, the rise of authoritarian states and the conservative authoritarian challenge that they pose and the way that they interfere in European societies, building wings with conservative sections. And uh, finally, uh, to add to those uh, factors, we have the very specific uh, uh, issue of the inability for the EU to forge a common response to a variety of domestic, political, and also external challenges. And uh, we still have the issue of legal fragmentation within uh, the Union as a major issue. So nation states still want to, and they jealously guard their national competences, and sometimes the EU level uh, may be reticent about asserting its authority. So it's an ongoing challenge. And I would say that the confluence of these factors does not bode very well for uh, even the uh, development of uh, democracy and uh, further trends. But of course, not all should be doom and gloom. And there, always, uh, there is always the space for the reassertion of uh, civil society of liberal democratic norms and that happens especially when they're particularly under threat from authoritarian designs and just to give one example uh during the pandemic so uh, at the very beginning, uh, when it comes to, I'm specifically talking about the Balkans, it was believed that during times of crisis, which is also a general trend, people tend to rally behind strong leaders, so to say in quotation marks, uh, and that uh, there is no dissent and people need the certainty provided by strong leader. And that 
was a sociological trend that we were seeing here in Bulgaria, for example, but but this changed very quickly and large-scale protests also erupted and these protests were about the reassertion of political transparency. They were against uh, corruption in the oligarchic networks in the economic society and uh, media. So it is uh, possible, even when we think that all is quiet, On the civil societal front, things may actually change and people may start to reassert their rights and use social media to that purpose. (laughs) Uh, I'm wondering if you can speak to, um, uh, with climate change, the climate emergency broadly, how that could affect geopolitics in in Central and Eastern Europe. I'm wondering uh, if you see any trends there in terms of climate emergency and how that could exacerbate uh, existing geopolitical tensions uh, in that part of the world. Now, first of all, it is it is important to mention that the extent to which Central and um, East European states are able to transition to clean technologies will be happening through the support of the EU. So, uh, for instance, the recovery and the resilience plan and the transition to green uh, economies all will all significantly depend on uh, the support from the European Union. So. In that case, uh, I think that uh, the Central and East European members of the EU will depend for their transition, uh, particularly on the West, whereas countries such as China have not been really up to observing uh, environmental standards in, the, in their economic activities and projects in the region. And um, this may actually lead to a backlash on the local uh, level from the people who are experiencing such uh, environmental damage in a very personal way to their livelihoods and the ways of life in the way that it is happening currently in Serbia and the more copper mine. So when there is a backlash, it is very likely that it will happen also on the local level and just uh, uh, not to forget that Climate change has micro effects in terms of the livelihoods and people uh, of people, and also their very immediate um, way of living in environment. Yeah, Romina, is there uh, anything you'd like to add? Now, uh, perhaps I would like to speak to the ways in which we can counter authoritarian designs, uh, particularly in the media sphere. And I think, and this applies not only to Central and Eastern Europe, but also to other countries as well. It's perhaps important for us um, to rethink the types of, of financing models that sustain media outlets, because currently what we have is the um, division between the uh, commercial or private uh, form of financing of media and also public or government form of uh, financing. And so when it comes to the private uh, sources of capital for media, especially in Central and Eastern Europe and the Balkans, this leads to oligarchic control of uh, news uh, sources. So that is to say local magnates tend to assume control over media. And, And the result 
is that such news outlets tend to, of course, defend the assets and the interests of their um, uh, local captors. So, and just more generally, we can rethink sources of financing. So, first of all, there can be uh, diverse forms of ownership. They can, there can also be diverse forms of financing, uh, thinking of innovative ways of funding the media, such as through donations and also crowdfunding. Um, but also uh, when it comes to uh, review councils and also decision-making bodies of media outlets, it is important to include a variety of stakeholders, which uh, means not just the owners, but also the leading journalists and the dedicated leader, uh, readership of those news outlets. Hey, uh, Romina, thank you so much for joining us on Below the Radar. It's wonderful to listen to your analysis uh, of uh, Central and Eastern Europe and, and Russian influence. Thank you so much. Thank you. Below the Radar is a knowledge democracy podcast created by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. Thanks for listening to this episode with Romina Filipova. For more information about her latest book, check out the show notes. Don't forget to stay up to date with Below the Radar by visiting us online at sfu.ca slash voce or following us on our various social channels on Instagram and Twitter at SFU underscore VOCE or on Facebook at SFU VOCE. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time on Below the Radar.